We, we good? You can hear me? means I did it right. Thank you, guys, worship team. Um, that was uh, awesome. I have to say that the, uh, that song, Who You Say I Am, has become one of my favorites in the last few years. So, and I hope that you will keep those words in mind as we're, we're talking here today and that you will really firmly believe how chosen you and I really are. So it's, uh, it's been a while since I've had a chance to, to, to speak uh, from, from the platform up here. And, and so it reminds me of a story that I heard about a preacher. And so he must have been a Baptist because all the people sat in the back. But one thing he noticed is he tended to preach long and people would get up and leave about noon. So unbeknownst to the congregation, he had a special device installed, and then the next Sunday when he preached and it got close to noon, he hit a button and the chair started rotating forward, and he brought everybody down front. Well, you know, everybody was, uh, didn't want to get up and be the ones to leave first. They had to sit through it, and they got to lunch late. And So the next Sunday, he's preaching, and people start eyeing their watches. He's eyeing his watch, and he thinks, oh, I'm going to get them today. And right about the time, all of a sudden, the chairman of the deacons reaches in his pocket, pushes a button, and the trap door opens, and the preacher is gone. And everybody gets up and goes to lunch. So I'm going to do my best to keep us in a good time. The floor feels pretty firm. We just redid it, but if I see Mr. Varney reaching for his pocket, I might start dancing, okay? We're going to try to get in, get out. But I'm also a firm believer in, you know, when the Lord has something to say, far be it from me to try to cut it short. Right? I'm not a professionally trained speaker, so you know, you're going to get the best that I have to give you, and I'm going to trust that the Lord just uses me as a conduit, and then what you hear is what he wants to communicate today. So our text for today is, is 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. And I want to tell you that it's been a couple of years, but prior to COVID, we had a small group that was meeting, and we started going through 1 Peter just section by section, and it was one of the, my favorite things I've ever done in studying God's Word and doing it with brothers and sisters. And it took us probably six or seven months, and we only got just past this chapter. But there was something about these words that just stood out to me, and the Lord has not allowed me to let that go in the two years since. So what I'm going to share with you is just what the Lord, I think, has been just keeping on my mind. And I, and I believe that this, this text, this scripture, may be one of the most vital and important to understand in all the New Testament because I feel like we can take this and we can go in so many directions and it all connects. And I hope you will see that today. But we're going to read our text. So 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10, this is what Peter writes. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit, all hypocrisy and envy, all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And come to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold... I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So I went one verse past. So again, these last two years, two words that I want to kind of throw out to have you consider is, is the word ponder or muse, which that means to think about carefully or to be absorbed in thought. So I have pondered and mused on this for quite some time. I find myself often coming back to these. And then another term that we in the South should know is called marinate. Everybody knows what marinating is, right? 
So if you look at the definition of marinate, right, the purpose is it helps begin the breakdown process of cooking, right? And so the breakdown allows the fluids, whatever you're marinating it in, and seasoning to enter the meat so that it will maintain its moisture during, during grilling and not dry out as quickly. And, and I want to encourage you guys that when we look at Scripture so often, and I feel like I can say this because in every year that I've been on this earth, I've been brought up in church culture and Christian community. So there's never been a day of my life where I haven't been brought up in tradition and in church mindset. But I, what I've noticed, what it's felt like to me as I look back is that so much, we, we just sort of like speed our way through scripture. We have the Sunday school lesson. We do the Sunday school lesson and we move on. Most of us, myself included, are guilty of, we might hear a message on Sunday and think that's great. We don't think about that message anymore once we walk out the doors. We don't ponder what was said and how that might influence our relationship with Christ. And we think about the process of marination. If we will marinate, let God's scripture, if we will just sit in it, Maybe that breakdown process is the beginning of breaking down things in us that Christ wants to get away so that it allows the fluids and the seasonings of his word to come into us so that in our times of testing and our grilling, what will come out is his flavor. So I, don't, I want to encourage us as believers, never be in a hurry to get through God's word. It's like we're in such a hurry because we've got to get to the next thing Oftentimes, we're going to misunderstand the next thing because we haven't sat. And it's okay to sit. It's okay to hang out in God's word, okay? So I just want to leave you guys with those thoughts. So I got four questions. And look, there's a lot of scripture, if you notice on notes. We're not going to, like, read every word, but I want them there as reference. I'll pull out the stuff because, like I said, I've got to try to keep it, keep it short. And even though by nature I'm a pretty shy and introverted guy, when I get talking, I can just go, and I'm well aware of that. So we'll do our best. But four questions to help us ponder... Or muse on scripture. So first one, right? How does what we read connect to the rest of scripture? I think that's a question we ought to ask. And this is not something that you probably would get taught in, in Bible school because I've never been trained. But this is just thoughts I have. But how does what we read connect to the rest of scripture? How does the Old Testament and the New Testament, how do they connect? And now, as a matter of fact, I would encourage us to start thinking about them this way. Not old and new, but first and second. Old gives us this connotation that it's like done away with. It's maybe not applicable because it's old, right? But really, it's first and second. They're two sides of the same coin. They're the first and second part of the same story. Any of you guys seen Men in Black with Will Smith, Tommy Jones? You know, Will Smith is like, you know, you're old and busted. I'm the new hotness. So yeah, you're old. You're done away with. I'm the new. I'm going to come in and show you how it's done. But the reality is with Scripture, if we try to, and I will tell you this, depending on who you listen to, be very mindful. There are teachers of well-known churches, well-known authors. They will try to what we might call unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament and don't dare fall into that trap. All right? So we've got to ask ourselves, how are they telling parts of the same story? Well, this is what Hebrews says. And Bobby mentioned Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. It says, God, he spoke long ago. All right? So we, got, we have a Second Testament passage already saying God spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So God spoke, and then he's speaking now. And there's a, there's a message of this one is not done away with. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. In John 5, 39, Jesus says, You examine the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it's those very scriptures that testify about me. Well, what were the scriptures that he had? It was what we consider to be the Old or First Testament. That was their scripture. Jesus himself says, those things testify about me. So how dare we as believers try to say those things don't matter? You can't do that, right? Their scriptures were what we have in our Old Testament. We can't separate the First and Second Testament and also be accurate in our understanding. Secondly, is there continuity throughout Scripture? Do the various writers communicate in a manner that aligns with one another? 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, Paul writes this to Timothy as he's encouraging him as the apostolic worker. He says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, 
and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Again, they did not have what we have as the New Testament, so their sacred writings must have been the laws and the prophets and the scrolls that would have been read in the synagogues, which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. So as you see, we should see common themes and common instruction across scripture. And we can't avoid difficult or challenging parts just because they make us uncomfortable. Just because they make us work for our faith. Are you going to press your way into the kingdom? Are you going to press forward into the difficult things that Christ teaches? You know, we're told, don't stay on spiritual milk. Go for the meat. Anybody that's eating meat knows you've got to do a little more work to chew meat than you do to drink the milk, right? But the end result is, my, 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 how satisfying, right? How flavorful, right? So, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. Yet for us there is only one God, the Father from whom all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Many people today have a question, what's the meaning of life? As a believer, it's right here. We exist for him, for God. If you want to know what the meaning of your life as a believer, simple, four words, we exist for him. That's the meaning of your life. If you want to know the how do you live a meaningful life, we exist through Jesus Christ. It is by the life of Jesus Christ that we exist and live out for God. So if you want to think about it this way in an uh, English sense, the Bible teaches us the reality of who, what, when, where, why, and how. Think about that. If you want to know who, what, when, where, why, and how, Scripture's got our answer. Thirdly, how does what we read point us to Christ or the work of Christ? John 1, 1 through 3, and then 14, this is what John writes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he goes on in verse 14 to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. For studying Scripture in some way, shape, or form, it's going to point us to Jesus Christ because he was there in the beginning and he became flesh and dwelt among us and he continued to teach us. In Colossians 1, Paul writes this in verses 15 through 17, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth. And then he goes on to finish that and he says, In him all things hold together. So you see, we believe Scripture. Jesus Christ is the connection point. He's the thread that runs from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. So again, we can't separate the first and second testaments, right? We can't separate the scriptures and fully understand Jesus and his work. If we try to separate them, we're going to miss something about the reality of who Jesus is. And then fourthly, what is the context and how does that help us with 1 through 3? How does where this is set, how does how it's written, when it's written, to whom it's written, how does that help us look at these first three things? So we have to look at that both in the passage, in the context of the passage, but then also in the grander narrative of Scripture. Because there are many things that will point to other things because of the commonality of the Spirit, right? We talked about there ought to be some common elements and things we see. And if we have to, we just keep zooming out, and we zoom out, and we zoom out in the story until we see where Christ and God are connecting this for us. In this case, the historical context is this is written uh, by Peter. He's writing from Rome to the churches that are spread out through uh, Northwest Asia, uh, or Northwest Asia, which is North Galatia. So it's about A.D. 65. So what we have to understand about Peter is he's been walking the path of his, as a disciple of Jesus Christ and been an active part of the growth of the church for several decades now, right? This is after... He's faced correction and rebu rebuke from Paul. Remember, Paul was like, mm, I had to correct Peter, right? This is after Peter's been in prison multiple times. This is after Peter's been a part of church leadership and the church in Jerusalem. This is after Peter has been a part of being amongst various church communities, right? And this time for the church is a time of great suffering under the Roman government and from the pagan culture which surrounds them, right? There's pressure on them coming from all, all sides, right, to succumb 
to the ways of the world and return to their past pagan lifestyle, right? It's having this negative influence on how believers are living as a community and how families are living in a relationship with one another. Now, we have no idea what that feels like, do we? Do we have any idea what it feels like to have the government, the pagan culture, pressing in, drawing us, tempting us to put aside some of our faithfulness in Christ and maybe step back in to the pagan lifestyle because it's easier, because it helps us not have to suffer? We don't know what that's like, do we? Not at all. This, this passage would have no bearing, no context for us to understand today. So what is the high calling? And, and look, I hope you guys are excited today. And if you're not excited yet, I hope you will be. So what is the high calling? Well, we see it here in verses 9 and 10. It says, you are, one, a chosen people. Two, you're a royal priesthood. Three, you're a holy nation. And four, you're a people for God's own possession. Those four things right there ought to be enough for us to ponder and marinate in for quite a long time. There is so much here that what we're doing today is like a teacup out of the Atlantic Ocean, and it's going to feel like a fire hose, all right? So I, you know, if, if you are so inclined, take these scriptures and don't just put them away. Use them as something to, to think on and sit in. But that language might take us to something we've heard before. It might sound familiar because in Exodus, right, God's bringing his people out. He's starting to set them apart. In Exodus, he says, now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the nations. And although the earth is mine, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words you're supposed to say to the Israelites. He's talking to Moses. He repeats this in Deuteronomy. So he says, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples in the face of the earth. So this is a scripture that you will see in multiple, multiple other passages. It seems like God is trying to communicate something to this group of people, is it not? Maybe it's important that he wants them to understand who they are and whose they are. So how does this translate to us as believers today, right? How are we able to be called according to this reality since those words were spoken to the nation of Israel? How is it applicable to the church, and what's the implication for us now? And I'm so glad you asked the question, because now we can keep going, all right? In Galatians, when I read these words in Galatians, I suddenly said, aha, check this out. So Paul writes to the church in Galatians, in uh, Galatians 3, 6 through 9, he says, even so Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And he finishes that with, so then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And then he goes on later in Galatians 3 and 26 through 29, and he says, If you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then, it's one of those if-then statements, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. If you ever wanted to know the New Testament, Second Testament connects to the Old or First Testament, I challenge you to figure out something better than that right there. I challenge you to look at that and think to yourself, what God promised them, that promise is somehow not applicable to me. Because we are told we are heirs to the same promise. Because if you say you don't believe that, then your testimony about believing all the scripture being God's authored word is false. We don't get to cherry pick. We don't get to pick and choose. In Romans, Paul writes this in verses 4, 19 through 16. He starts out with, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also the uncircumcised? Right? We've been talking about Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness. He finishes in verse 16 and he says this, Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be grace, may be by grace, and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who have faith in Abraham. He is the father of us all who have the faith of Abraham. So if we have faith in Christ, like Abraham had faith in God, we are heirs. 
So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean then of this high calling? What does it mean to be a chosen people? I'm so glad you asked. What's the significance of our terminology? Well, Paul, when he's right into the church in Ephesus, says this, For he himself is our peace, who's made both groups. Now, what were the both groups? We have to understand. There was Jew, and there was Gentile, all the pagans. If you weren't Jewish, you were Gentile. That's all there was, right? Jewish people said, we're special, we're separate, we're Hebrews, we got God, y'all don't, y'all are pagans. And the pagans said, we worship all these gods, you worship one, you're weird, we're in charge, and they were two separate people. But it says he made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing his flesh, the flesh, his, in his flesh the hostility, which is the law. And he says, so that he might make the two into one new person. Or some translations might say humanity. And in this way, establishing peace, that he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having it put to death, the hostility. So what's this hostility? Well, not only did Jews and pagans really not like each other, Jews associated with the Romans, not because they really wanted to, but it was because how the Jewish leaders could still kind of do their thing. But they really didn't like them. My understanding is that Jewish people felt towards pagans, they might as well just spit their name when they say it. There was also, if you remember the way the temple was set up, there was a wall that, unless you were Jewish, you couldn't go past. There was a dividing wall. And it kept people from access to God at that point in time. But Jesus Christ put that to death. Now, I like the message that says this. It says, then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. So I want you to think, chosen race, humanity, almost like there's a chosen race. There's this new race upon the earth. Because of Jesus Christ. So how do we get to be one of these people? Well, Colossians 1.18 says, and he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Well, you know, you can't have a first if you don't have something come after that. So Jesus Christ was the first to be resurrected from the dead in a way that allows us to come behind him, right? Otherwise, it would say he's the only born. He was the firstborn. So we come after him into this new resurrected life. Romans 6, 1 through 7, Paul writes, And what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? He says, absolutely not, right? He says, are you unaware that of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him in baptism into death. And he goes on to say, so that we too may walk in a new way of life. And he goes on to say that we know that our old self was crucified we have access to being this new race this new group of people because of jesus christ because he allows us to come and die and resurrect into something new second corinthians says if he's if anyone's in christ he's a new creature new creation these are going to sound really familiar to you guys but i'm trying to pull them out to help us see how this connects and how this teaches us ephesians 4 24 and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In Colossians 3, 9 through 10, don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the creator. So you've accepted Christ, you've got this newness, and you are now chosen in that newness to be a pupil of God. So do you feel special? If you don't, you should, and if you don't, just hold on. Let's keep going, okay? But you should understand that you are part of something new. You are part of a third race. Not everybody gets to be part of the third race. What about as a holy nation and a people for God's own possession? We're kind of bringing these two in together. There's a commentary, and I like the way this commentary put it. He talks about in Matthew, when Jesus is speaking, he says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, talking to the Jews, and given to a people producing its fruit. So it says Peter is now writing to this nation. So Peter, as he's writing this, is writing to this new nation, this new group of people, whose evident royalty and worth at once mark them as the king's children and reflect 
credit upon him, meaning Christ, who called them from the world's darkness into his light. In Exodus, again, we look at that Exodus passage, we see that language of my own possession, my holy nation. Same thing, we get that in that Deuteronomy passage. In Titus, Paul's writing to him, and he says, For the grace of God has appeared to salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. And he says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and check this out, to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession to the praise of his, meaning God's, glory. Again, Second Testament is connecting to the language and the design and the intent of God's words, how he spoke long ago. Ephesians, Paul speaking about the Holy Spirit, says he is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, right? Dallas Willard, if any of you guys know him, he's, a, he's an author. Um, he's written some books, The Divine Conspiracy, The Great Omission, but this is what he says. I want you to think about this. I think this is very timely in the context that we find ourselves today. He says, The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians, will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. See, there's that focus about the kingdom of the heavens. We have to live as a people that are part of something different as a people of God's own possession, a holy nation. See, as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, we are aliens and strangers in the present world. Or that's what Scripture tells us, because that language ought to sound familiar, right? But whether or not we actually live according to that truth is another thing. So what does this mean for us as God's people? Well, it means that as a group of believers, right, a body being built together, by Christ and under Christ, our direction, our motivation, and our purpose for daily living should no longer reflect a connection to the world system. God has given us a new reality so that our actions are motivated by being citizens of God's kingdom, which is from another place. Jesus even said that, right? It's like my kingdom, it's not here, it's from another place. Right? He said, that kingdom is at hand. So you see, we are holy. We are set apart. Not by our works, right? Not by being good and nice. Not by any other name. No matter what culture wants to tell you, niceness does not get you into relationship with Jesus Christ and restored into relationship with the creator of all things. Only through Christ can that happen because only Christ died and resurrected and offers us a new life. God's calling us out of the captivity of the wilderness of the world and calling us into his marvelous light. And we would do well to remember that, to believe it, and to live like it. A royal priesthood and a kingdom of priests. Now I got to this part Mm-mm. Man, this is so much fun. So much fun. So we had to say, what's our connection to the Old Testament? We don't like, really have like priests the way they had priests per se, not in you know, our evangelical culture, not in our Reformed type culture. But listen to this. So Hebrews, though, Hebrews tells us that, therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So we get this description of Jesus as our great high priest. And, of course, we remember that. There was was the high priest in the First Testament, right? Hebrews 5, 7 through 10 says that in the days of his humanity, he, meaning Christ, offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying. And it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him, being designated by God as high priest. So Jesus is the high priest. We don't have to worry about how do we do that. But then, here's what's cool, I think. 
we perform the functions of the Levites are also known as the priestly order. So if you haven't done a lot of Old Testament reading, you might like know the name Levites, but you know Levites had a very specific task among God's chosen people in his holy nation. As a matter of fact, we go back to Exodus, right? And he says... You will be my kingdom of priests, meaning that even the entire nation of Israel had sort of this priestly feel to it. That they were going to have to learn. But that designation is there. In Revelation, chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he made us into a kingdom of of priests and he is talking about us in the church age all right in numbers so you want to go back like start looking at like leviticus numbers you get a lot of this repetition and the reason it's repetition is because you know if you don't if you guys haven't figured out the israelites like all of humanity were stubborn and they also had a tendency to easily give up on god's call until things got tough but in numbers 147 through 53 God's commanding, he says, the Levites, however, were not counted among them by their father's tribe. So you, did you guys know, do y'all remember, when the nation of Israel got into the promised land, they were portioning out the land? The Levites did not get a portion of land as their inheritance. So the 12th tribe for inheritance was actually the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. The Levites had a special calling. He says, you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it. So the Levites shall be responsible for service to the tabernacle of testimony. In Numbers 3, he continues on. Bring the tribe of Levi, Levi forward and present them before Aaron the priest that they may serve him. So now we're getting this language of the priestly order was helping to serve the high priest. Right? And he says there, to do the service of the tabernacle, they shall also take care of the furnishings of the tent of meeting, along with the duties of the sons of Israel, to do the service of the tabernacle. In Numbers 8, he says, so you shall single out the Levites from among the sons of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine, that then after that the Levites may go in and serve in the tent of meeting. Numbers 18 he says this, So you, meaning the high priest talking to Aaron, shall perform the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, so there will no longer be wrath on the sons of Israel. Behold, I myself have taken your fellow Israelites, or Levites, from among the sons of Israel. They are a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to perform the service of the tent of meeting. I am giving you the priesthood as a service that is a gift. And then Ephesians 2, Paul writes, so then you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household. Having been built in the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, which we read that in Peter's words today, in whom the building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also were being built together into a dwelling place of God and spirit. So what was the tabernacle for the Israelites, it was the dwelling place of God. When God came down to be present with the Israelites, he came down to the tabernacle. So I want you to see the Levites were given in their command and in their set-apartness to care for the tabernacle. There's an uh, author named Watchman Nee. He's a Chinese brother who's no longer with us. This quote's attributed to him. And I really found this interesting, so I want you all to try to listen in. So Peter tells us that Christ is the foundation of the church. He was a stone rejected by the builders who has now become the head of the corner. We have become the living stones and are joined and built up to become a spiritual house. We also have become a holy priesthood to God. It's as if a voice from heaven burst forth announcing, All who are saved are now God's priests. All the living stones, those who are part of the spiritual house, are now priests of God. Right then, a promise which had been set aside for 1,500 years was recovered by God. What the Israelites lost has been recovered by the church. And then he goes on to say this. The church today is the kingdom of priests. The church is a priesthood. And what does that mean? It means that everyone who has tasted God's grace has only one occupation left, that of serving 
God. I've said before to the young people, if a person is a doctor before he believes in the Lord, his occupation is medicine. If he is a nurse, his occupation is nursing. If he is a teacher, his occupation is teaching. If he is a farmer, his occupation is farming. If he is a businessman, his occupation is business. But the moment one becomes a Christian, his occupation completely changes. Every Christian has only one occupation, serving God. From the time we were saved, we became priests to God. Henceforth, we have to serve God in his presence. And that is our lifelong spiritual goal. And I wonder how many of us look at our daily life and think to ourselves, I'm not what my worldly occupation is. That's not the thing I'm supposed to be doing that's the most important. My occupation, that which, you know, when we say occupation, it comes from the word occupied, which means it's like what's taking up your time, right? It's what you're doing most of the time. Now, we, you know, we live in a world, you've got to make money, you've got to have something to, to get along. But do we believe, do we live, and act like that which occupies the majority of our time and our heart and our meditations, right, what we think on. Is it God? I think that's a great question for us to continually ask ourselves. So what might, like, what might this look like? I'm starting to get a little dry in the mouth. All right. hope you guys are ready to get it fast because I want to get through it all. Got a few more minutes. So what might this look like? Well, God in his presence, I think, equals his presence in the church as the dwelling place in the body. Because scripture tells us this is where God comes and lives. We're building this house. Galatians 6, 9 through 10 says, Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let's do good to all people. But I want you to understand it says, and especially, do y'all know what especially means? It means more importantly. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. As the message puts it, so let us not get ourselves, ourselves fatigued doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get a chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. So, so here's the thing. Now, this, I want y'all to let me unpack this just for a second. I don't want anybody to have... If anybody falls over out of a heart attack right now, then I'm sorry. You misunderstood what I'm about to say. Our occupation, I believe as believers, our first primary occupation is not the salvation of other people. Right here, Paul is saying, do good to everybody, but your first priority as believers, as children of God, is to your family of God. Now, that doesn't mean, right, that it's not important because we have a call. But here's the thing that I often feel challenged with and I see. We sometimes put the cart before the horse. You ever wonder why it's sometimes so difficult to, like, try to, you know, evangelize, you know? You know, sometimes maybe you don't feel comfortable. Maybe you're an introverted, shy person, and it's difficult. Because I think in Christian culture, we somehow inadvertently, subconsciously develop this mindset of witnessing, going out and getting other people saved should be the thing that I'm doing the most, and when most of us aren't doing it well, we feel really crummy about who we are as Christians. And then we also say, I can't do, I can't go out there and, like, witness to people. Well, so let's step back and let's look at this, because I think, I hope you understand that what we're going to do is we're going to set the understanding of how we're able to best and ultimately fulfill that call. Okay? So stay with me. In 1 Peter 4.8, he says, Above all, that means more than anything else, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And he talks about the receiving of gifts, and he says... Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion. You see, so we're to have this certain relationship with one another, looking to one another first, so that as we are in relationship with one another, God is able to be glorified through that. 
Philippians 2, it says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of spirit, if any affection and compassion, right? So if you've got any of these things, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on later in Philippians to say, finally, brothers and sisters, so again, all these words are written to godly communities. That's who this is for. It says, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellencies in anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As to the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. You know, so, so I, what I'm saying is, it's difficult for us to try to make Christ attractive to other people if we've neglected to learn how to love one another appropriately. Because I think the, Christ, the, the outside world, and it's not fair that the airplane media is a small percentage, but it's how we are perceived, and sometimes even our own communities, depending on how the language we use and the attitude we use. I think the outs of the world apart from Christ has trouble believing that we really care about one another. They will read the Bible and say, I see that, but I don't see that. And they're like, why would I want to be apart? You can tell me all you want to that I'm sinful, that God loves me, that God wants me to come into something better. It's like, come into something better. They come into something better, and they look around and go, this is something better? Are you serious? So it's not that you know, witnessing, evangelizing, sharing our faith is not important. It absolutely is, right? You know, Scripture says, like, how people know if we don't tell them. But Peter also goes on to say in this very book, be ready to have an answer when people ask you about the hope that you have. You see, I think in a way, when you consider if you as a witness, I don't want you to feel like there's, you just have to be running out and doing it because maybe that's not the gift that God's given you. But if we live in a way that has something different and we're living amongst a world that doesn't know Christ somewhere along the way they're going to ask us a question <laughs> what, why, how and guess what we should be prepared to have the answer and we should be able to do it because we've given our time and attention to actually being able to honestly talk about what happens when God calls you in to his chosen people right this is a little bit of a longer quote, and we'll break it up into two sections because the first part hurts my feelings. All right? John Nugent, who is a professor at Great Lakes Community College in Wisconsin, wrote a great book. Um, if you remember to want to write it down, it's called um, Endangered Gospel, How Fixing the World is Killing the Church. Highly recommend it. One of the top five books I'd recommend for any believer. Okay? This is, this, is, this is what he says. The opportunity for new life in Christ in a better place he has created is good news, and it gets even better. We don't have to create these relationships. God has already forged the new humanity. Our task is to embrace and enjoy God's good gift. Our job is to make relationships grow. It's to have faith that God has already accomplished that task and then plan our lives accordingly. If we don't have time to truly share our lives with fellow believers, then our root problem is faith. If we don't make time to truly love and prioritize one another in devoted Christian fellowship, we don't really believe and we have been raised to newness of life together. If some of us feel alone in our homes. It's because we don't really believe and act as if we have been adopted into a new family and made friends of one another. If some of us feel miserable while working in, on large house projects or navigating through difficult struggles. It's because we don't really believe and act as if our homes and struggles truly belong to one another. If churches have to farm out the discipleship of their youth to parachurch organizations, perhaps we don't really believe that Christ has given his body all the gifts it needs to meet our needs. If several, members of our, if several of our members have found that the best way to pass time is to stare at and manipulate miniature handheld devices, maybe it's because our imaginations have been captured by a reality more interesting, worthwhile, and demanding than their experience of God's kingdom. Those who work among the powers and principalities find their most profound fulfillment through their nine-to-five contributions to world betterment. 
it is because we don't really believe and act as if the old order is truly passing away and that the new order has truly begun. If any of us regards our life together as tiresome, tedious work rather than an energizing and life-transforming gift, it is because we don't really believe and act as if together we are the first fruits of God's new creation. The new world on the way. The very thing the prophets longed for and the angels wondered about. These experiences expose the unsettling fact that our life together in God's kingdom is secondary to something else. Whatever our life truly revolves around is the actual center of our identity. What a hopeless situation indeed. And for many of us, that is our situation. I read that and I say, just say, ouch. (laughs) I'm I'm as guilty of so much of that in my day-to-day life. But don't be dismayed, friends, because this is what he goes on to say. Imagine instead the light and easy yoke that Jesus offers us. Imagine being part of a church where people don't feel lonely because they find themselves in regular fellowship with friends in Christ. Imagine being part of a church where those working on big projects or struggling through major problems don't have to constantly beg for help because brothers and sisters in Christ check in daily to see how things are going and offer help before being asked. Imagine a body in which we don't have to plan social events for our youth because they are already busy doing special things throughout the week with brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles in the faith. Imagine a life together that is bustling with such meaningful activity that members don't need to aimlessly search through Netflix or Hulu trying to find yet another show that can capture their interest and imaginations for a short time, only to leave them feeling empty again when it's over. Imagine a world in which kids don't have to watch endless Disney Channel reruns or scan through various app stores looking for free games to help them deal with their insufferable boredom. Imagine members who can't wait to get home from work so they can see what everyone at church is doing that night and hear about what they've been doing all day. Imagine us not caring whether we will be serving someone, watching shows, or playing games together because we've learned that to find enjoyment in doing what others enjoy and serving together whatever the task may be. Imagine what it would look like if we renounced the idol of personal preference. That's hard for us in America. Renounce the idol of personal preferences. Likes and dislikes, which according to our culture make us unique. Imagine a world in which life in the body no longer interrupts our real lives because it has become the primary rhythm of our lives. Imagine instead that our life together in Kingdom Fellowship is our true life, which gets interrupted by jobs, chores, and the need for sleep. That is what God asks of his people because it's precisely what he's made of us. And it's the kind of fellowship that a lost world desperately needs to find. We invited people to come and experience what we do together. Are they going to find what they're desperately seeking for? Are they going to find a people that are living so differently they can't help but have to ask certain questions? See, I think this requires a paradigm shift in our attitude and our perspective. Because as new creations, we should have new priorities. You see, I think one thing that we look at Scripture and we think, It's a window. And we look through Scripture and we see the people on the other side of the window and we see what Scripture tells us and we see what they do and we go, they're doing it wrong. That's not right. We have to figure out how we're going to make sure they know it's not right. But brothers and sisters, I think that Scripture, God's Word for us, is really a mirror. It's a mirror that when we read, it's not for us to look through and to see what's wrong with other people. It's for us to look at and say, is my reflection matching up with what God's word is telling me how to live? Think about all the passages we just read. There's so many more in every New Testament book. Why? Because the apostolic writers were writing to believers, to communities who were having problems living according to the high calling. It is a high calling. Don't be scared of it. Take joy in it because you know what? You are part of an exclusive group, and exclusivity in this case is okay. Not everybody gets access to it because not everybody is willing to accept the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not everybody is willing to die to their personal preferences, their idols of what they want. It is exclusive, but it's not isolatory. We don't isolate from people. We're not telling people you can't come in. We want you to be a part of what's going on, but not everybody gets it. But we have to live in a way that shows them why they should want it. And it's not 
the words that we say is the things that we do. Do you think that people that don't know Jesus really want to be a part and really want to give the time to find out who we really are when what they see presented with is us forcing our views and beliefs on them? You know, I heard a great term one time, out of the heart, the social media feed speaks. If you're on social media, if you went back and looked at your feed, what language are you communicating? You know, the gospel, which is the truth of Jesus Christ, so you might as well put Jesus Christ on whatever you're putting out there. What you're saying, regardless of what's going on in our culture, are you being dismissive? Are you being rude? Are you being hurtful? Right? Guess what? The gospel of Jesus Christ is never meant to be a trump card, and it's never meant to be a gotcha. If we're using our Lord's words as trump cards and gotchas, we are so far removed from the heart of Jesus Christ, we really need to look in the mirror. So what is the reason for all of this? Well, if we look back earlier in 1 Peter, verse 2, the last part of 9, we are, have this high calling to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. See, why did God set apart Abraham and his descendants? If you read the First Testament, you get this idea, and you hear him say, I want a people who are mine, who will be a blessing among the nations, because they will show what it looks like when a group of people live together under my authority, under my lordship. Remember, God's intention for Israel was to never have a king. He gave them the king because that's what they said they wanted. He said no, and they said yeah, and he said fine, but this is what's going to happen. But that was not his design for Israel. Now I'll tell you, we live in America, but the best form of government is not a democracy and it's not a republic. The best form of government you and I could ever live under is a kingdom with a perfect king. And you know what? Because if we've accepted Jesus Christ... We've died and resurrected. Our old has gone. The new has come. We are something different, and we are part of a new kingdom, and we have a king. Do we live, young people, adults, right? Do you live among this generation the same way they do? Or do you live, do I live in a way that says there's a different nature about me, Jesus' kingdom is from a different place, well, so is my allegiance and my reality. I am now an alien in a fallen world. See, to proclaim God's praises, we must be, first be united under and through Christ and not things that are based in the world system, a system that's passing away. We're now citizens of the heavenly realm, not the earthly realm. So our priorities are to show what life looks like in the kingdom of God not to be divided over worldly ideals. How many times is the church itself divided over things going on in the world? We are to live as his people in a community that is ruled by his peace, while the world system's in chaos because it lives separate from Christ. We as the community of God live in peace and gentleness with one another, meeting needs and bringing God's kingdom to bear among his people. So when those in the world see God's people living differently they will see Christ being revealed and Christ will draw people to himself that's what Jesus said I will draw all men unto myself the church is here to make the manifold wisdom of God evident we are to be the place where it's evident and that Christ will do the work because he is living himself out through us we live differently by obeying scripture and that scripture is to us not the pagan world let's quit trying to rely on the world order to do and to bring about and to show the reality of what God's kingdom is about. That's not the world's call, it's our call. It's a high calling. It's a great calling. We should be excited about it. We should be figuring out, how do I do this? This is cool stuff. Imagine, 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 imagine all those things. What would it look like? Maybe we live in that way in some small pockets. What would it look like if we lived that way as a big, grand community? It's like in Ephesians 4, it says... So here's some things about how we live with one another. 
Ephesians 4, he says, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there's one body and one Spirit. Later on in Ephesians 4, he says that you were sealed for the day of redemption. He says, uh, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God and Christ forgave you. The famous Corinthians love passage, what love is? Patient, kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act disgracefully. It doesn't seek its own benefit. It's not provoked. It doesn't keep an account of wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Keeps every confidence. Believes in all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. You know, I think Christians, we ought to consider, we ought, we ought to be the least offended people, and I think sometimes we're the most offended people. As Christians, we ought to be able to take whatever the world dishes out, because that's the model that Jesus set. Jesus had ample opportunity and ample reason to retaliate, but he didn't. Why? Because when he looked at the people that weren't yet his, he had compassion even in the midst of their anger. Uh, you know, I wonder, do we look at things with spiritual eyes? Do we see those that hate us and the world around us that we can so disagree with through the eyes of our Lord? If what we're putting out on Facebook or what we're saying and, you know, communication with friends, if that language is not something you think that Jesus would speak, maybe we ought to think about what we're saying if we're truly calling ourselves as disciples. Galatians 5, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these which I forewarn you. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, because against those things there's no law. And we're almost done. Romans 12, Paul writes, love must... Be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Giving preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Then he goes on to say this. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. So not just within the community now. He says anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of people. If possible, so far as it depends on you and me, be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will reap burning coals on his head. If your enemy cusses you out because of your belief on a certain thing, if your enemy says nasty, mean things about you or I because of what we claim to be the truth of Jesus Christ. Be at peace. Feed them. Give them water. That's what we're called to do. To do anything else flies in the face of our Lord. And I don't think we can say we're accurately representing what Jesus Christ wants. I'm going to finish with this. God calls us not so much to make the world a better place, but to be the better place in the midst of a fallen world. As Christ brings people into his kingdom, their hearts are changed, their attitudes and actions are changed, and, here, and thereby the way they influence and interact with the world is changed. As this happens, more and more territory in the fallen world is reclaimed for God's kingdom. The presence of Jesus Christ made manifest of the church will be the presence of the already but not yet kingdom at hand. Philippians 2, it says, do all things without complaining or arguments so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but we live in a crooked and perverse generation. And a lot of times, we get pulled into it. There's a way 
not only that we live ourselves, because that's important, but these writings in the New Testament majority are written to believers. We have to think about this in a corporate sense. Are we being light? Are we a light that's put on a hill that people can see from far away? Or is the way that we act and interact with our culture just as dark, just as vehement, just as rude, just as mean, just as nasty as how they're treating us? So are we the light? Scott, you guys can come on back up because this is it. How can we light the way to Jesus Christ? How can we truly declare his excellencies if we're not first living the reality of his lordship within the community of those called by his name? If we're not living up to the high calling within our community that calls ourselves by his name, how can we truly declare his excellencies, excellencies to those who don't yet know him as Lord? You see, we have to prioritize this high calling. By prioritizing this high calling, by caring for one another, we live out the reality of who Jesus is, what the kingdom life looks like, and then when we speak to other people, we can speak to them through the words and the heart of Christ. We can share with them why we think it's better for them to know Jesus Christ as Lord and be a part of a civilization that's not from this world, to be a third race, to be something new, to be something different, to live weird. That's fine. Call me weird. Call me closed-minded. I'm going to love you, and God willing, I'm never going to be rude to people just because they disagree with me and think my faith is silly because I want to have the eyes and the heart of Jesus Christ who looks on compassion with people, who sees the need, who understands the reason they're hurting and the reason they're living the way they are is because they don't yet know him. They don't yet know him. And we should be compassionate to that because we once didn't know him either. And because of his great mercy and love for us, we got a chance to know him. So I challenge you guys. I want you to be excited. I want you to understand Oh, this calling is high, make no mistake. But it's a beautiful calling. And each and every one of us who's given our lives to Christ is called to it. Start making it a priority. You want to start drawing, letting Jesus draw people to himself? Let's be the place where his manifold wisdom, where the reality of who he is, as we're built together, as we care for God's tabernacle, the dwelling place, as we perform those priestly duties, that we're a gift to the high priest that we serve him as he stands before us, for us in the presence of God. Appreciate you guys' time today. I hope it was a blessing. I know I tried not to go long. I know it was a little bit long. But it's the word the Lord gave me to give. Let's pray real quick. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you so much for my family of faith that's gathered here. I thank you for the opportunity to come and just to be challenged by your word, but I thank you that you love us enough not to just save us and then put us to the side, but to, to save us and call us into part of what you're doing, to, to be the key point of how you're seeking to restore and reclaim your creation and just create a people that points to you, that speaks to your glory, that speaks to your magnificence, that speaks to the beautiful reality of what living under your lordship means, and that as we, as your people, as aliens in this world, still have to exist in a difficult world that has its challenges, has its sickness, has its illness, that as we live in the midst of those, that we will do so in a way where other people see there's something different, and that difference is credited to you. We thank you for this time. We just ask that you continue to add to our number here, not for our glory, but so that you can bring more people into the calling to honor you above all things. So in your name we pray, amen. Now, you, you know, I don't know, membership-wise, you know, we're glad for anybody to worship with us. But if you're not yet a member of Grace, you know, I want to challenge us to, to live up to the high calling. And if you want to be part of that, I'd encourage you to consider just coming and joining us. And here's another thing I want to leave you with. The mirror. We are not to look around and say, my brother and sister is not living that way. We're to look around and say, am I living that way? It's not about what anybody else is doing. What am I doing? Uh, nobody's called me. I mean, we want to call each other, check on each other, but, oh, great, you know what? 
maybe you need to ask yourself instead of saying, nobody's called me, how about who can I call? How can I do what maybe isn't being done? How can, there's a need. Oh, I got a need. Yep. Guess what? Maybe somebody hadn't checked on you and and, and they know you have a need. Well, one, we want to know. Don't be afraid to share it. Two, maybe you need to figure out somebody else's need can be met because you want to live up to the high calling. Make sense? Let's not look at everybody else and judge them. It's a mirror for us to let the Lord speak to us. So I know Bobby's going to be here if anybody wants to come forward for any reason. We'd love to have you. And I would love to be able to pray for you guys.